Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. Today's guest, Benjamin Percy, is the author of the novel The Wilding and the short story collections Refresh, Refresh, and The Language of Elk. His work has been read on National Public Radio, performed at Symphony Space, and published by magazines such as Esquire, GQ, Time, Men's Journal, Outside Magazine, and The Paris Review. He's the recipient of the National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship, the Whiting Writers Award, two Pushcart Awards, the Plimpton Prize, and his work has been included in the Best American Short Stories and Best American Comics. He is the writer-in-residence at St. Olaf College and teaches in the Low Residency MFA program at Pacific University. And he's here today on Between the Covers to talk about his new book, A Story of Werewolf Apocalypse, entitled Red Moon. Welcome to Between the Covers, Benjamin Percy. Thanks so much for having me on. So Red Moon isn't a typical werewolf novel in a lot of ways. So why don't we just start by uh, introducing to your readers this cultural, political landscape that they're entering at the beginning of the book. Sure. Yeah, my werewolves, or lichens as they call them, are, as I call them, are not full moon howlers. I spent a lot of time with the USDA labs, with researchers at Iowa State University, trying to figure out the slippery science behind infection and vaccination. So if you've heard of mad cow disease, if you've heard of chronic wasting disease, these are prions, a misfolded protein, an animal-born pathogen that targets the mind. So in this instance, in an alternate history, I have prions leaping out of the wolf population, and fast forward to today, they have mutated in their human host, and 5% of the population is infected. And these people who have difficulties with rage, with sexual impulse, are marginalized, have been marginalized throughout human history. So they are part of a public registry similar to sex offenders. They have to take an emotionally deadening drug that, and, and succumb to monthly blood tests, and they can only hold certain jobs. And so, of course, there's an uprising. And in response to this uprising, there's a swift government crackdown and hijinks ensue. So this this union of the werewolf mythology or the lichen mythology, as, as you call them, from lycanthropy, and the fear around infection and the fear around prion disease, did you, was there a moment that you came up with this union for yourself in the book? Well, I was thinking about fantasies that have resonated through time, thinking about stories like Frankenstein, a prime example of this where cultural unease is channeled. Frankenstein's creature embodies all of the anxiety swirling around the industrial revolution, the fear of science and technology, uh, the fear of man playing God. The same thing goes for the Red Scare, McCarthyism, the way that that gave rise to the invasion of the body snatchers. Uh, you can think of the latest Batman films and how they very much parallel some of the things that, have, that are going on in contemporary America. Uh, you can think of the slew of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic narratives that have come out since 9-11. And, and I was trying to, to tap into the, the anxieties of our times, and I was thinking about infection, for one. I mean, you need to look no further than the storefronts or the countertops of any business establishment in America to see Purell oozing. You look to the headlines in our newspapers and magazines, and if there's a swine flu or bird flu or West Nile outbreak, you know, we're paralyzed by this. So I was thinking about infection, but I was also thinking about terrorism. 
And as these last few weeks have so unfortunately reminded us, terror owns us. Terror might be the most powerful emotion beyond even love in the way that it can grip millions and, and, and paralyze us as a country. And it's interesting, this theme of metamorphosis, because when you have a country that is terrorized, you see the way people who aren't lichens or werewolves, the way they change and deform in, or, in the name of security or in the name right, of, right, right. of you know, safety for the populace, for instance. Yeah, there's, you know, there are good guys and bad guys on both sides of this. Uh, my characters are the infected and they are the uninfected. My characters are men and women, young and old. They come from all sorts of different cultural and religious and geographic and economic backgrounds in order to provide these myriad perspectives on a very complicated issue. Well, in doing research for, for our interview today, I was curious what the origins of lycanthropy were. So I, I in, in, in researching it myself, I found a connection that seemed to also argue for a nice poetic resonance with prion disease. And I was curious if, if you'd come across it as well. But the name comes from the king of Arcadia, Lycon, who fed Zeus his own son to try to see if he'd notice if um, to test whether Zeus was really a deity or not. And when Zeus uh, discovered that he was being fed his own son, he turned Lycon into a wolf. And so I was thinking like this the prion diseases when you have mad cows disease and yep. you have like cows being fed themselves. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. it's sort of a, almost feels like a revolt of nature against human efficiency. Here we have this horrible system, food system where we're like warping all the natural laws and then nature comes roaring back in this prion disease. But in a sense also is that is also the mythology of werewolves. True enough. And if you look at the end of the novel, which I can't, discuss because it's very spoiler-y, but uh, its conclusion very much connects to the point that you just made um, in that, well, we are, some of us are being infected without even knowing it. A lot of people have been making note of what they consider a leap for you from literary fiction into full-on horror genre fiction. Yeah. I didn't really have the same impression to me, and I'm curious what your impression is as the writer. Um, I didn't have the same impression of it being such a leap. It felt more like an extension of themes that you already were addressing in your other work. And, and some of those themes being uh, wildness versus domesticity, the tensions between nature and culture, uh, id versus ego. Uh, this runs through a lot of your um, fiction, whether it's in the Paris Review or whether it's uh, Red Moon, full-on werewolves. And you even have in, uh, in The Wilding, a character who makes a, a suit of fur, yes, uh, an Iraqi vet who wanders with a, with a, a sort of a, a precursor to this metamorphosis. Yeah, I don't see this as a departure at all. A few people have said that. Uh, the only departure I can see is stylistically in that this is an epic sweeping novel, uh, which has always been the kind of book that I've loved most. Uh, I love to be swept away. I love to be immersed in a narrative for weeks at a time. Uh, the most recent 
book series to do that to me is George R. R. Martin's Song of Fire and Ice Saga. And, and I, I wanted to write that kind of book, and it took me so many years and so many failed novels to finally accomplish it. So I see a departure there, but as for uh, the content, I feel in many ways I've been, if you look at my short story collections, uh, even if there isn't a ghost, many of those are haunted stories. Uh, some of those are creature-in-the-woods stories. I've always been borrowing from uh, the tropes of, of horror and from, I guess you could say, uh, pulpier narratives. Uh, there's a revenge story in Refresh, Refresh called The Killing. And uh, there's a post-apocalyptic narrative in there. And, and, and anyways, my characters really have always been hairy on the inside. So, yeah, this is, I feel like this is, Red Moon is the book that I've been working toward, that I've been wanting to write my whole life. Do you feel like you've been moving more and more epic as you've proceeded from book to book? I know The Wilding feels much more like it's in a specific setting, a confined one, in fact, with very limited number of characters. And in this book, we are in so many different countries, different parts of the country. And, and I don't know how many points of view there are, but there are quite a few different characters that you flesh out in, in the book. Yeah, you could think of The Wilding, my first published novel, but not my first novel, not by a long shot. I threw away thousands of pages before before publishing it. Uh, you can think of the wilding as kind of a negotiation because up to that point I had been a successful short story writer but unable to take on the long form, able to run a sprint but not a marathon. So when I wrote the wilding, as a kind of negotiation, it takes place in a small set, it has a small cast of characters, it all takes place in one weekend. And that's the book that taught me how to write in the long form. And in the process of doing so, my head was sort of rewired. And now it's actually difficult for me to write short stories. Uh, and Red Moon is this big sweeping narrative. And, and, and so is the next book, which is a, called The Deadlands. It comes out in June of 2014. And it's a post-apocalyptic reimagining of the Lewis and Clark saga. So... It too, you know, you have to you have to give uh, adequate amount of real estate to a to a quest like that. We're talking today with Benjamin Percy about his new novel, Red Moon. So, so Ben, let's let's let our listeners uh, hear some of the prose. If you have a section you wanted to, to sure, uh, sure, to read. So I have many characters in the novel. One of them is Claire Forrester, and she is. I guess, one of the central storylines. Uh, she and Patrick Gamble are sort of the star-crossed lovers of the narrative. She is in one of the infected, and her parents, though she doesn't know this at the time, are have been part of the resistance for many years. And in fact, in the 60s, they were part of kind of a, a weather underground movement. So after the terrorist act that opens up the novel, there's a government response, and her family is targeted. Claire does not know what is happening outside right this minute, as the small brigade of vehicles, the armored vans, the black sedans with government plates, appear at the end of her block with their headlights off. She lives in a wooded neighborhood, each house set back on a half-acre lot. There are no street lights, no sidewalk. The vehicles purr to a stop. 
Their doors swing open but do not close. Any noise that might bring Claire to the window, the stomp of boots along the asphalt, the clatter of assault rifles and ammunition clips, is muffled by the steady snowfall, a white shroud thrown over the night. She does not know about the tall man. In the black suit and black necktie, his skull as hairless as a stone, who stands next to his black Lincoln town car. She does not know that he has his hands tucked into his pockets or that the snow is melting against his scalp and dripping down his face, or that he is smiling slightly. She does not know that her father and mother are sitting at the kitchen table, drinking their way through a bottle of Merlot, not holding, but squeezing each other's hands in reassurance as they watch CNN, the coverage of what the president called a coordinated terror attack directed at the heart of America. So she does not know that, when the front door kicks open, splintering along its hinges, her father is holding the remote in his hand, a long black remote that could be mistaken for a weapon. She does not know that he stands up so suddenly his chair tips over and clatters to the floor, that he screams no and holds out his hand, the hand gripping the remote, and points it at the men as they come rushing through the entryway, the dark rectangle of night, with snow fluttering around them like damp shredded paper. She only knows when she hears the crash, the screams, the rattle of gunfire, that she must run. She hasn't changed often, only a handful of times. Not only because it is forbidden, because she could be jailed for it, but because she doesn't like the way it makes her feel so grotesquely other. And bruised for days afterward, her body's sudden shifting like the growing pains that make children twist under their sheets and cry out at night. She can smell the men now, deodorant and aftershave, cigarettes and gum, gun oil, the sulfur of their weapons' discharge. She can hear their harsh breathing, their voices calling out, clear, from different corners of the house. She can feel their footsteps pounding up the stairs toward her. Her skin itches horribly as if bubbling over with hives and then the hair bristles from it in a rush. Her gums recede and her teeth grind together in a mouth not yet big enough for them. Her bones stretch and bend and pop and she yowls in pain as if she is giving birth, one body coming out of another. She always cries, tears of blood. This time her tears and mewling come from the pain and also the dawning realization that everything in an instant has changed. But these thoughts are fleeting. The wolf in her has no time for them. Her mind sharpens to a singular focus. Survival is what matters. There is nothing else. No love or sadness or fear or worry. Only a needle stab of adrenaline that surges through her, sends her loping toward the window, toward the reflection she barely recognizes, hunched and misshapen and growing larger by the second. Then she crashes through herself through the window. The glass shatters, and shards of it bite at her. 
There is no roof to scuttle across, no lattice or gutter to climb down. There is instead the blackness of the night, the emptiness of the air she falls through, flipping and twisting as the wind shrieks in her ears and the ground rushes up to meet her. Splinters of glass, mixed up with the snow, sparkle all around her. Two inches have already fallen, but that isn't enough to cushion a fall from a second-story window. She lands on all fours, rolling and thudding forward, sliding across the short expanse of lawn, smearing away the snow in a ragged teardrop to reveal the green grass beneath. A tree at the edge of the lawn offers a hammer blow to her chest. Her breath is gone. Her wrist blazes. The night seems to close upon her for a moment. And then she draws in a sucking gasp. Her window throws a square of light broken up by triangles and hexagons of yellow and orange that spotlight her body. The spotlight blackened a moment later when the men charge into her room and pursue her exit. She shakes away the pain and leaps to her feet and sees the man. The tall man in the black suit. Twenty yards away, he observes her with his head cocked curiously. And then he begins to walk, and then run, his long arms slashing the air toward her. I hope that if you aren't doing your book on tape, that you're running out after this and firing the person and doing it, because that's just a great reading. <laughs> no, I did do it. I did. You did do the book, book on yeah, tape. Yeah, it was a... Uh... Eight hours a day in the studio, they're hardcore wow. for seven days. And on day two, my my throat just hadn't done enough push-ups. I wasn't ready for that kind of work, and I was coughing up blood. So if you listen on disc two, it, <laughs> it sort of sounds like... Well, that's that, <laughs> that, the ambiance. It's good for the theme of the book, for yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's talk more about your fascination with um, wildness and wilderness. I know with, it obviously runs through most of your work, and you look at the wilding as sort of a meditation on a diminishing wildness. We have a, an impending, impending uh, development that's going to happen in the wilderness where the setting is. And, and each generation of men seems to be less uh, capable uh, and yeah. self-directed. More watered down. More watered down. So uh, this book on, is sort of the flip side of that in a sense that it really has to do with the wildness rebellion within all of us and, and that struggle between over domestication and, and wildness. T tell us a little bit more why why you keep returning to this as, as a organizing principle. Uh, maybe it has something to do with growing up in Oregon. Maybe it has something to do with growing up on 27 acres of land and having a father who was a hunter and a fisherman uh, with a mother who butchered all of our meat, who raised all of our vegetables uh, who was an obsessive camper and hiker and botanist. Uh, and, and Oregon is all about these intersections of, of wilderness and civilization, sort of smashing up against each other. Uh, and, and I grew up moving irrigation pipe to make my Coca-Cola money and mucking out horse stalls and mending barbed wire fences and so I guess I was always, in addition to exploring the landscape uh, on vacations, on, on weekend expeditions, 
I was also sort of involved with the taming of it. But as for, you know, Red Moon as a, as a whole, I guess that, you know, one of the reasons that the werewolf myth resonates with people is that we all, as a result of rage or exhaustion, drugs, drink, we all have come to regret our behavior the next morning. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the most famous werewolf story. Uh, the Incredible Hulk is one of the most famous werewolf figures. And these stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us that sometimes comes out when we're pushed to the edge and sometimes comes out when the shades go down and we know no one's looking. You mentioned living on a ton of land and it sounds like having a lot of self-directed time as, as a kid growing up too. Um, and it reminds me of something that Michael Shaban said about how he laments the way parenting is today where everything is curated by the parents and the parents are always sort of on the margins of any activity. And it's not allowing uh, children to form their own ma parentless maps. And, and it, that really feels like something that you address in Red Moon in the sense of the two main characters, the, two, the lover uh, dynamic between Patrick and Claire, both of them sort of are forced due to circumstance to make their own maps in the world without the guidance of parents, sort of um, solving that mm -hmm. nature, culture, mm -hmm. wilderness, domesticity divide on their own. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's something I think about a lot. Uh, I was raised in a sort of Huck Finnish manner in that I could depart at dawn and come back at dusk without much in the way of supervision. Uh, I was ducking under barbed wire fences and shooting my BB gun and building tree forts and building dams in the river and getting into quite a lot of trouble sometimes when I approach my teenage years. But uh, that, that sort of dreamscape that I lived in, I mean, when I was roaming the forest with my trusty sidekick, a German shepherd named Heidi, you know, I, I, was, a, I was a knight or I was a cowboy. Uh, and as a result of that, I feel like it was training ground for the novelist I've become. And I'm trying as often as I can to be as a parent more hands-off because the culture of today is uh, helicopter parents are the norm. And every minute of your child's day is scheduled. And, and I worry about them. I mean, I don't just mean my children, but children in general being able to have uh, that independence, that, that self-direction, uh, and, and just the, a creative impulse to fill up the empty space with uh, whatever their mind might come up with. Mm. Speaking of Oregon as a character, you, it's not only your psychic landscape from your from your childhood but you mentioned this this juxtaposition of extreme nature and extreme culture sort of jammed up against each other do you think that's why we we keep seeing a lot of these genre stories set here whether it's twin peaks or twilight or the tv show grim and now red moon like is there something sinister or um haunting about that juxtaposition do you think that is specific to the pacific northwest or 
Uh, well, it is a kind of fairyland. Uh, you need only traipse through Forest Park here in the middle of Portland to, to realize that. But, you know, it's, it's just such a dynamic environment. Uh, the state is, is fragmented in so many ways. Uh, we have plains, we have desert, we have alpine areas, we have uh, rainforests, we have lush valleys, we have the coast. It's like the whole country smashed into one place. Uh, and, and we have all these different cultures smashed together here as well, and all of these different political leanings tangled up and economic divides. And I guess you could say when it comes to it being fearsome that you know, my upbringing, I guess, was more fearsome than most in that you know, several people that I knew died as a result of snowmobiling accidents or skiing accidents or drownings. Uh, I encountered death on a regular basis as my father would uh, take us on hunting trips and and uh, you know I would be involved in the in the butchering of the animals. Uh, I I spent several summers on archaeological expeditions and during that time would you know happen upon rattlesnakes constantly and uh, one unfortunate summer I was a teenager at the time so I feel I regret this now but you know how it is when you're an 18 year old dude uh, you know I killed many rattlesnakes and collected their rattles and ate them all wow <laughs> um, and and so uh, you know it's just uh, it, it is it is a, a, a bit of a dreamscape uh, there's there's a lot of even though most of most of the West has been tamed. There, there are pockets of wildness still out there. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Benjamin Percy about his new novel, Red Moon. Another thing I'd love to just touch on is the way you're characterized as a masculine writer. And I think part of that is your voice, and part of that are the themes of, of wilderness and self-reliance that are in your fiction. But it also struck me that in Red Moon, despite all of the surface level masculinity with the bearing of teeth and the resistance movement um, and a lot of action that really the really powerful characters in this book seem to be the women. I'd say, yes, that the, the women are not only the most powerful characters, but uh, uh, my favorite characters, Miriam in particular, is the character who surprised me most and, and whose story I most want to continue with, in part because she needs to exact her revenge upon another uh, one of the characters in this novel. So uh, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm classified as masculine in part because, you know, I sound like the bowels of the earth when I, when I speak. And, you know, I stand with my legs apart and have big hairy sideburns and, and all the rest of that. But uh, the the heroes of this book are are, are the female figures, the, the women warriors. Uh, well, before we end today, can, can you tell us a little bit more about your, your next novel, the post-apocalyptic yeah, Lewis yeah. and Clark novel? Is, is that, I'm assuming it's genre fiction in, in some regard, as it's, it's a speculative retelling of history? Uh, if, if you imagine the states 250 years from now following uh, uh, a nuclear apocalypse, we have some outposts of humanity. And the idea behind this expedition this time around is that they are reuniting the states. Interesting. And Clark is this uh, 
really fierce, hard-headed woman, and Lewis is sort of a feeble-bodied scholar, and there are elements of magic in the in the novel that are grounded still in science and that I have sp spent a lot of time studying environmental disaster and mutation and the possibilities of evolution. Oh, that sounds great. So I guess you could call it sci-fi or maybe cli-fi if you think about how the climate uh, and environmental transformation is such a, so much at the heart of it. Nice. Well, it's great having you on Between the Covers today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. We were talking today with author Benjamin Percy about his latest novel, Red Moon. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.